Hello, and welcome back to these bare bones conversations with myself, Corey Hess. And today we have uh, part two of Mark Doyu Albin. Um, please watch the first video, um, part one with Mark. Uh, I think that's, you're going to get something out of that. So that's really wonderful. Welcome, Mark. Welcome, Yusun. Hey. Hi. Great to see you. Okay. Um, I want to, I think there's a lot to talk about, so I want to jump in. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about um, how your training developed at Sogenji and with Shoto Harada Roshi and uh, maybe get a little bit into your process with koans and how that was like, what that, that was like in the life there. And also maybe touch upon, if you could, what it was like to be the head monk. And I think somehow you really shined with this uh, leadership role. So I'd love to hear about that. Mm. Yeah, when, like I said, uh, the first time when you arrived, you have so little responsibility other than doing what you're told, which is a big responsibility <laughs> and, you know, staying healthy through the, through the seasons and then slowly responsibilities kind of come. And, uh, my first sort of deeper calling into things, although I, I was sure liking the sincerity and, and so forth of the practice but what happened was that the, the roshi needed a driver and the, um he had a bad experience with the driver before <laughs> who was a westerner who wasn't very good at driving on the left side of the road and <laughs> got near the road actually hit the car door of the roshi and so i got a shot at it right and he liked something about that. And I had a, a stint where I was really driving him a lot. And then I got a job in the room next to his as the Fuzui in the temple. That's the one who answers the phone and greets the guests and takes care of the tea room and often drives the, the Roshi. So I got used to this, Mark, Mark, you know, kind of, and I would, uh, it was, it started to become a, a sense more that I wasn't doing something abstract. I was really involved in the, in what was happening in the temple. And, um, I think he started to see something in me that was possible and, uh, started giving me more responsibilities. Um, I wanted to go home after a year to think about things and the Roshi contemplated that. And he said, in Japan, we say, uh, sit on a stone for three years. No and so I stayed three years <laughs> before I went home. And when I said, well, three years are up, I'm ready to go home. He said, uh, yeah, I mean, I wanted to go home and think about my experience and sort of see my family and so forth. And he said, yeah, go home. And then when you come back, we'll ordain you there. And uh, I didn't understand the word for ordination. No? Uh, 
and I went, okay, I get to go home, right? Who cares about the tokudo? And then I asked, you know, the translator chief on what tokudo was afterwards, just to kind of fill out the the information. And she told me <laughs> ordination, you know. Um, no, like this is not. You know, I'm free. I'm doing. I'm a free Zen man, you know. I doing this and kind of getting get my energy together and uh, and uh, then uh, the Roshi picked up on my resistance and we had a very interesting uh, sounds you know, interview uh, pattern after that where I just simply wasn't uh, given very much acknowledgement or <laughs> it didn't really exist and he would often say ah you really don't have what it takes to be an ordained monk anyways and I'm like of course, like, well, no, I do. I mean, you see that I do. I just don't want to. <laughs> it's like, oh, so it kind of went like that for about half a year, actually. And, uh, and you know, it brought up a lot of deeper stuff about being dependent on the system and questioning uh, the future and so forth. But uh, he basically, I pinned him down just before I went home and said, I really need to know. I need to know. I don't want to be so dependent. And he looked at me and he said, uh, well, he shook his head like, God dang it, why do I have to say these things? You know, he doesn't like to say too much. And he said, uh, when you ordain, the first 10 years are very difficult. And the next 10 years are slightly easier. <laughs> And then you do what I do. And I thought, I kind of said, okay, my heart and soul, I'm going to give it a shot. And I went home and, you know, my parents flipped out. <laughs> like, really going back there? It's like, yeah, you're going to be a monk? Yeah. Ah, you know, we don't understand. And so it was, it was really against the nature and understanding at that time. Nobody really was getting that. But the Roshi had convinced me that that was a good direction for me. And it was. Yes. Oh. Yes. 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 What was ordination? Excuse me. Okay. And then he started making me, giving me like more important jobs, you yeah. know, and there, in these very stiff robes, the first the Jishadio, <laughs> knocking over the Kesaku every time I served the tea and, you know, getting scolded by the head Japanese monks there at the time and just making a real mess of it. You know, at the time of my ordination, I had gained again, you know, <laughs> told you last time about gaining the weight. Well, I gained again, this, like, I don't know, 10 pounds or something, you know, see pictures of my ordination, you know, I really, I really, uh, was overwhelmed with the situation. I, or, I ordained on Rinzai Day in January. It was a very cold, very austere experience. Yes. Um, and at some point, he asked me to be the assistant head monk, you know, the joke. And then that was strange. And then I was head monk. And yeah, I was, again, the head monk usually also decides the work, right? The work that the Sangha will do. So I would have to memorize because we're all sitting zazen. I would have to think in my head what 30 people, sometimes more, are going to do and then announce it very 
clearly and sharply at the end of breakfast, give each person a very clear assignment. And uh, yeah, the Roshi would listen to that. And then he would say, no, we're going to, everyone's going to do this, not that. And, you know, just really screw me up uh, on as much as he could. And, and uh, yeah, just did it the Japanese way. You know, you watch him and then the next day you're doing it, right? I did that with the, you know, one day at the Zazenkai when the public came in, I would play the drum for him and he would lead the Zazen, lead the exercises. And he just uh, made me one day get up and lead the exercise in front of 60 Japanese people in Japanese. And he stood next to me, corrected every word that I did not say. Yeah, it was humiliating in front of these uh, 60 Japanese people. And I'm like angry for a week. And what happens the next Sunday? He's not there. I lead the entire group. I give tea to the group. And it went very well because he just instilled that experience in me with such a directness, right? And so this is how he just went on and learned in this rote not not through explanation ever, right? Just yes. see him do it, and then one day you're just doing it, and you don't even have time to think how good or bad you are, <laughs> and then somehow your body and mind. Uh, I think there's a there's a type of um, of bodily osmosis that happens, right? And so it's 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 in your body, right? It's a whole process that um, grows and develops. Exactly, exactly. That happened also with the chanting. You know, one the Japanese monk, Itsusan, the Roshi's disciple, I just followed him around for three months. He never explained one thing. And then one day he just said, you're leading the chanting the next day. And I was waiting for a list, you know, when are the bells and how should I pronounce the name? And, uh, you know, here in two weeks, you will be, you know, no, tomorrow you, boom. Wow. I will, okay, uh, you can't say no, really. Well, Westerners liked, <laughs> like to have that choice, right? But yeah, but you found out you could do something. You can do something that way, just watching, and then you're on, and you, no time to, uh, to, uh, to take a position of, yes. I'll be pretty good at the beginning, and then I'll improve. <laughs> you just do it. Um, and and then so um, also I think just to mention I think that the Roshi is was so tough on you but I'm I also think that there was probably this this love that he was showing you in this way that was um, that you was probably um, really affected you in some way also um, even though he was so tough I think there was something about it which was very powerful. Um, I don't know. Can you say something about that? You know, the Roshis, my opinion of Shota Harada Roshi as, a, as an emotional person, if you can call that, is his love relationship, if you could call it, was with his master. Yeah. You know, he, he appeared at a very important time in Shota Harada Roshi's life and gave him his first robe, you know, after his father had passed away. And, and I think there was much more to serving uh, Yamada Mumon Roshi than I want to do Zen and this is my boss, right? It was a, his, his deepest devotion yeah. was there. 
And uh, I think the Roshi, I didn't know it. I'm married, <laughs> you know, This is what ordination really was and uh, got a feeling what that's like. I mean, he can do that with many people. That's the form, but it was truly a, a feeling of this is my number one mirror. This is the thing that I, Sanzen to Sanzen and yes. encounter to encounter. This is, this is what my life is. So sure, <laughs> he, he took some, some time for that, but there was also a kind of, yeah, there was a lot of um, in the car, right? Driving or something like that, or, you know, situations where you do have personal experiences um, that was sure some click there obviously where where he he shared some of his um humor or or yeah just some of his views of of more simple things that that were very you know warming i mean one time he did this uh <laughs> we would go read sutras around okayama that's part of the job as a monk to go read sutras and you go to 15 different houses and you drink tea 15 times or hopefully not coffee because then you have five or six coffees that's not good for me <laughs> and uh but you can't pee all day probably right he won't let you go pee right you gotta there's a lot of issues on these days uh, <laughs> but one day we got fed lunch right and he and i think this is a tradition but he <laughs> he ate about he ate his portion, but he wanted to make our hostess feel good as after our reading of the sutras. And he kept having me eat seconds and I ate really a lot of food and I was getting a little frustrated and they had those thick mochi balls, you know, with beans, rice. Oh yeah, he wants more, you know, it's fine. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and we get to the next house and they also serve us lunch. And we go through the same, <laughs> we go through the same thing, right? Oh yeah, he wants more. And, you know, I'm starting to kind of breathe like in different ways, you know, cause the chanting anyways was difficult from the first lunch. And, uh, but you know, you just with this energetic person and somehow you're able to do this right in a different way. And then I, I, I got through that lunch and I was kind of getting pretty angry, you know, and, and we got to the next house and they served us lunch <laughs> and he didn't say no right we had to say yes this is the japanese thing a little bit and uh he didn't really make me eat seconds but you know i i was very full and i was like i've had food like you know in all the crannies of my of every part of <laughs> possible and we walked out of that house and we sat in the car and I was mad and then there just came this kind of like really soft voice and it just said, good training. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Love it. And then we went on the rest of the day and, you know, I digested, you know, I survived. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, wow. Wow. wow, that's funny. Yeah, death by Udon, right? <laughs> <laughs> You know, there were many situations where, you know, that kind of camaraderie and, and that kind of sharing also, you know, really, yeah, it was very supportive, I think. And there was a mutual sense. I think he knew he had someone who had a sense of, yes. of devotion. You know, he was very, very important to me. And yes. uh, we yes. went quite a ways, you know, with this, with, you know, we can talk about Whitby, but right, 
Yes. You know. Um, okay. Um, so could you say a little bit about koan work? And then I would love to move on to Tahoma after that, please. Uh, well, um, after the Roshi, as I said before, he really doesn't want to give people koans right away unless they have some kind of base um, in their tanda and in their, in their energy. And it took me quite a while to, to, to relax around that process of, of learning breath or how to go in the interview and express breath and concentration. But once the koan came, the mu koan, um, somehow some energy clicked in a little deeper for me. I could grab onto that a little more. So sometimes I think, and I've talked to quite a few people in the, over the years about that, sometimes grabbing onto that koan has a, a fascination that brings our mind into it more. For some people, it might be listening to music or whatever, but you know, for me, and then with the Japanese, I had a little Japanese. If I would look up the kanji, if I would really understand the words, um, I would go closer to it too, right? I mean, I, I could understand it better. But I understood the koans, and this is a very, I say it in a very humble way. I, I didn't finish the koans, and I, you know, I did a hundred or two hundred, whatever, went through it with the Roshi. But I always felt <laughs> my true understanding of it was it was a, it's a tool for the Roshi to bring you closer to that place. And that's all. It's a tool for him to communicate his. It's not a, a quiz. It's really not. And so my uh, experience was, for example, I was kind of feeling clear and straight in my energy and had gone through a couple of koans. And then I said what I was sure was a, a very, or gave a very clear expression and I rejected me coldly. And, and that went on. And, and then my brain started attacking it in different ways and wondering how it could actually, how can I do it different? And this is, I think, the goal of the koan. If you still tend to doubt whether you're right, <laughs> then he sends you all the places you have to go to come back. And so three weeks later, I came to the Roshi and I was silent for a couple of days. I had no answer. And then one day I just said what I had said three weeks ago. And then somehow he said, oh, I'm going to move me through. Like he always does, oh, it's not right, but you move through to the next one. And so, and so it was never about um, acknowledgement. Now you understand. Now you know. It was only his way of recognizing that you had stopped searching and become yes. aware of the thing that was being talked about. Yes. And you were there. Yes. And uh, he saw how if you had finesse or you were rough. But he, he, in that sense, he's a good teacher and was trying to also refine you to the degree but you know that was that was one experience and i had another experience where um and this is probably the most uh, the one that reminds me the most of koan work where i knew i actually had to give the roshi uh, i had to strike the roshi right in my understanding but i didn't want to strike the roshi right i didn't, I didn't have it in me to strike the Roshi. I sat at the waiting and it's like, I see it. I see it, but I don't feel it. <laughs> you know, I'm not there. And uh, he doesn't want to you know it here. He wants to know that you can feel it and, and embody that, that lack of 
subservience, right, to an authority, right? And you can stand in that energy with in your own power. So I, I went in and again was somehow that energy just wasn't coming through and and he chided me, right? He gave me some kind of scolding and sort of like a slot machine, this arm kind of came down and, and gave him a good thwack and he started screaming at me and sent me out of the room. And th for three days, he did the same thing in a Japanese that must have, you know, from a thousand years ago, archaic Japanese. <laughs> and I went in three days in a row, couldn't understand a word. And finally, after three days, I, I, I said to him, as I bowed out, because I felt kind of good, even though he was being so harsh on me, something in me wasn't taking it so personally. And so I finally said, I can't understand what you're trying to communicate to me. And he said, you've been working on another koan for two days. Why do you keep telling me the answer to the last one? <laughs> because he had passed me on and I hadn't understand, understood it. And I, I always think that he did that on purpose because he doesn't want any part of us to think we got, we, we got some special understanding out of that. And, you know, smacking a Roshi is, is not uh, just uh, something you do every day. So if you really want to do the koans with a Roshi and you really want to do it quite seriously is really uh, those experiences. And then, you know, it, it comes in waves of weeks sometimes of clarity on that. And there can come a koan or a situation that um, he feels it's time to develop you in a certain way. And then it's a half a year of just having you work on a koan and you, you don't know what, what, where it's going. You're not, you're, he's, he's guiding you. You have to trust him. And, and then at some point you, you see all the possibilities. Some of those cones are so deep, you know, they really go into the big ocean and you have to visit that space and see all the delusions you can get yourself into in that space. Yeah and somehow uh, feel you can eventually stay in the clear place, right? Yeah, love it, love it. Um, okay, um, when, I, when I met you, um, that was at Tahoma, and um, whatever I brought to that was its own thing. But, um, you know, seeing you there and then later reflecting on that time um, when I was at Sogenji reflecting back on Tahoma, I kind of just remember feeling like, wow, you know, Tahoma could be better than this. It could be better than Sogenji. It could be a place where people come and they really heal. And um, it was a welcoming place, but um, still developing. But I really felt like Tahoma was a powerful place. And I was, I had, I hope, hope that it would grow and that, um, it would become better. You know, that was our hope with it, right? And anyway, could you talk a little bit about Tahoma, please? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, we visited that. Uh, we started, before I was even ordained, the Roshi sort of had this idea to go to Whidbey Island and we visited people there. And I think in um, 1993 or four, I started coming over by myself to start meet people. He really wanted me to come over uh, as soon as we had a piece of land and start to um, be a part of that. 
he saw me as someone who should be in the West, I think, and not take over. My idea was being in a Japanese seaside temple and having a good life <laughs> sometimes. But now once he, once he pointed out to me that uh, he would like me to um, be a part of that, I, I was interested and I was very honored and I really put what I could into that. Tahoma is a beautiful piece of land and a lot of the community was incredible. You know, people came together, builders, architect, um, just people came, they wanted it to become something and was very lucky. We started in the Airstream trailer, right? in the porta potty and, uh, and I had my kind of wild kingdom experience, like oh, the raccoons and, uh, you know, all kinds of animals, lots of mice in the Airstream. <laughs> Um, things I hadn't had to deal with in Japan, <laughs> a lot of things, eagles like trapped in the lake, you have to kind of free them or things uh, that really were fantastic. Um, cutting a lot of trees, which was strange, um, meeting the Native American tradition, you know, they became a part of the, the foundation of that was really, um, and it was great to be kind of the, the, the emissary, right, to be the one kind of part of, a big part of that. Yes. And I really uh, thought I could manage what I, one year, just to answer your question more directly, we traveled to Jack Cornfield's uh, place. We were, in, he, Roshi was invited to lead a meditation. And there were, he had 300 people every Monday night at his place. And um, Roshi did a wonderful meditation there. And uh, Jack Cornfield gave a very nice talk. And uh, afterwards, Jack Cornfield talked about running his place, right? He was uh, obviously had to, there was a big center there. And he said, uh, Roshi, <laughs> we do Samu in America differently than in Japan. He said, in the morning, we do meeting Samu. And in the afternoon, we do meeting Samu. <laughs> And in the evening, we do evening meeting some. <laughs> he just had his hands full with, uh, you know, all the difficult struggles that the Western people have building community, right? With, uh, you know, hierarchy, challenges, structure, relationship issues are a big part uh, of, of uh, ethics committee. And I know the Roshi just was not interested in sorting out Westerners' problems on the level of the relationship and not listening to all their uh, problems with hierarchy and authority. <laughs> it was not his thing, right? And uh, he didn't really want us to have to deal too much with that either, which, you know, I honor him for that, but I also noticed that young people were coming to me and older people with, you know, wow, my wife just left me or wow, I lost my job or wow, I um, have no money. And these were situations I was not, I didn't have an inner vocabulary for my Japanese training. You know, I had a kind of like, okay, okay, you sort that out and one day you'll all come and put on a Japanese outfit, shave your head and sit zazen with me was sort of my, my attitude at first. And I noticed very quickly that that wasn't working like that. And I realized it's 
social work was important. Like we we went we did a lot of things, right? We we got involved in the community. We we really did gather young people would come. I mean, it was it started to get an American flavor. Yes. Right. It really did. And at the same time, it it really would have taken a deeper structural analysis, right? Mm -hmm. To make that bridge from the Western dojo and the the freedom within that Japanese style that we Westerners experience in Sogenji and could be possible at Whidbey, what kind of outer structures, you know, needed to be in place. I talked to a lot of ministers um, about, you know, being a spiritual figure in the community, lots. I mean, I had lots of conversation with lots of people. How do you do it? Um, how is the, how are things organized? And those were topics I tried to present to the Roshi and he really didn't want to do anything different than the Buddha had done it 2,500 years ago, if possible. That was where his heart was with, with building that. And uh, I needed more communication, you know, eventually. So that's, you know, eventually what happened, right? I needed more feedback. I talked to some many of the in the Theravada system about structure. I talked to many heads of Zen centers and, you know, they really said you really have to have a structure of you have to have almost a legal system within your community. And maybe the most important thing is you have to understand brotherhood, you know, or community. You know, we're doing this radical thing with men and women doing a monastic life. You really have to have an incredible understanding of of brotherhood right like what is it to stay connected how do people stay connected and trusting and that wisdom uh we didn't get there yeah i didn't get there and i that's why i went on pilgrimage right with those questions uh is that possible because my devotion was still to the roshi you know it was very sad to not be able to feel i was going to be able to fulfill that mission in america under the form we were in yes yes well that's really interesting yeah um beautiful let's let's move on let's move on to you left training and went on pilgrimage i'd love to hear that right yeah so after 15 years of uh i couldn't just leave i i developed um a sense that, uh, you know, uh, a certain amount of tenderness in my soul was getting very covered up by a certain tension about not understanding how to move forward. And uh, so I told the Roshi, I had three questions. I'm, I want to understand about other traditions, how they're doing things. Um, I want to understand more about relationships, like why are we going to do it the way we're doing it. And I wanted to know uh, what it's like to be on my own without Sangha support. Like, who am I without this community around, without these, you know, being sort of a figure, right? In the robes with the shaved head. I wasn't sure what I really wanted with that, but I certainly wanted to, yeah, see who I was outside of Japan and with the island and my parents' house, right? So those were the three things and I got, he supported that. He hoped, I think I would come back and knew that it was a danger and we had some very intense conversations, but 
then I went, I got a ticket to India. My grandmother had left me some money and it was running low. I had, I was just, it wasn't much, but I had about $4,000 left. And I said, okay, I got to do it now and never, because if it goes down anymore, I can't do it. So I, I got a ticket uh, to India and, uh, I had heard about Arunachala, Ramana Maharshi, Tiruvannamalai, this place in South India. And somehow I just knew I should go there because that was a real meditator's Mecca and people who had left the Roshi were going there. And I heard other people had visited there and I didn't know exactly. I mean, I couldn't pronounce Tiruvannamalai for like a month, but that's where I wanted to go and Arunachala and Tiruvannamalai. <laughs> and that's where I went. Uh, that's where I got to. Um, and there were teachers and pilgrims and just a real mecca of spirituality around this mountain and it's amazing place not uh, every full moon a half a million indian people walk around this mountain barefoot every month and the ashram there has a lot of meditation energy and i met very interesting teachers i met uh, ajahn sumedho he was head of the london buddhist society i had tea with him and asked him all my questions and spilled my guts and yeah, he, he told me how difficult it was in England to get the Thai Buddhist organization to allow socks and sweaters. Like that took years of lobbying and pushing yourself through. And he understood so well my situation. That was very good. Um, I met a guy named Vienna who had been with Ama for for many, many years and, and slept for, not slept, he meditated for... <laughs> seven years in her basement in a in a two six foot long hole uh, with a little cubby for a toilet and just lived there for seven years and meditated with Amma visiting him occasionally and he had a lot of experience with a great master who was in the early days with Amma he's a wonderful teacher who I shared a lot with and he knew about practice he's a real yogi um, and yeah, and then I went down to Shantidanam. That's where Bede Griffith, he had a, a Catholic uh, Hindu meditation monastery, wonderful place, incredibly hot. And uh, that was very special to meet a, that community and the heartfulness there. Then I went to the only Zen center in India, it was in the south, met the Zen master there. And he told me a lot of his own. Uh, Ami Sami is a wonderful wonderful man, but he also struggled. He's also a Catholic priest and told me about his path and um, did a session there. And then I came back to Tiruvannamalai and ran into Mario on the steps of the, yeah. of the from there. You know, Mario I had met in Sogenji and, uh, and ran into him about six days in a row before we actually arranged uh, a time to meet. And uh, he, he knows the Roshi very well, and he really understood also my situation very well. He was already having hundreds of people attend his seminars at that time. Yes. And, can, you, yeah. can you say exactly who he is just real quick so that people could know who he is? Yeah, Mario Montesa is, uh, works as Master M. He's a, a spiritual master here in Europe, in Switzerland. And, because of, I think he, he's an interesting fellow because he was a musician with a very famous band 
heat wave in the 70s and he was a bass player and a groovy guy and uh but he had made a sort of spiritual understanding inside himself uh, that he needed to change his lifestyle and a, a few days later he was stabbed in the heart with a knife and was was dead for six or eight minutes or something and that was the beginning of an understanding uh, of his own spiritual uh, deeper spiritual journey which was very deep and started in a very deep way and he became physically handicapped which he still is to a certain degree uh, he was actually paralyzed completely for a year. He was blind for almost a year and uh, couldn't speak for that time and, and experienced some deep silence. Anyways, 38 years later, you know, he's got a thousand people coming to his, uh, to his uh, darshan, to his uh, talks. And uh, yeah, he he's the one who invited me to Europe, actually. I had no desire to go. I really didn't want to meet another master. I really didn't want to deal with another group or uh, song, being free of Sangha did feel quite good at, you know, at that time. And Mario, I mean, that's, that's just space. He, he didn't say anything. But then I went to Calcutta in India and spent two months with the missionaries of charity there. That was really fantastic. That was at Kaligat and was working there with the dying and got to live with the monks for a month and celebrate Easter with them. And, I really deeply considered that monkhood. They were fantastic going through the slums, so heartful, such an energy of service, such a good, healthy devotion um, and serious work. I mean, you really get to be with the dying. You really get to work with uh, people in the most terrible situations um, with worms and their things, or you, know, you have to help with really situations that are kind of mind-blowing until you've been there a little while. But I was allowed really in with the nuns and monks because of maybe my, my background and really, um, really appreciate that experience. But my stomach couldn't take it. <laughs> the food, the spices, the dirt maybe of, the, of Calcutta. I, I, I needed to, to, to get away from there and think about how to get healthy. And I went to the Himalaya for, for about three weeks and got healthy, got rid of my Jardia, it turned out to be, but uh, I decided I had this idea of getting healthy again with some bread and cheese in, in Europe, see some friends, get out of this uh, thin sauce and rice thing for the last five months and, and just visit Germany and have a see a few friends and eat some you know brown bread and cheese and yeah. feel sort of solid in my stomach again. It was really my image at the time. And I'm pretty sure I'll see a Mario, a seminar with Mario, you know, at that time. And, you know, I came to Europe just, and it was so quiet, you know, all of a sudden you think there's like silent signs everywhere because India is just so loud and there's so much going on. And, and Germany was just clean and quiet and boring. And I really had no desire really to, to stay because I had like my little tiny backpack with four pair of pants and four shirts and four pair of underwear. And I really hadn't gathered anything. I was really a pilgrim. And, and then uh, I went to a seminar with, with, you know, to Mario and he, he was, you know, was really something, right? It was really relaxed. And then, you know, I, I had a rapport with him and I, and you go up front in the darshan, right? You, you go have a meeting and, you know, I've been to Sanzen with the Roshi 3000 times, you know, I can stand in front of a, a master, I thought, right? You know, and kind of, but you're also in front of 500 people in the room and 
but all of a sudden you notice there's there's a power there that goes so deep in the heart that you feel you can really you're seeing from this heart that's way down here you know it's really the the really the ocean right you're not looking from the waves anymore you're really looking from the ocean and then you know he does his thing in silence he really doesn't he does speak and he writes books but it's really the silence is really where the work takes place and you know i really could feel my legs actually were going back and forth <laughs> and i was like what are you doing there and then he kind of stopped it and, and then this energy came into my tandem actually from from there and i just got warm and he called me up to the stage and looked down and he said you want to have dinner tonight and yeah okay yeah, i'll have dinner <laughs> and so then he introduced me to some nice people and uh, so that's I got some dental work done um, and then I traveled all over Europe for about a year actually meeting old Zen friends that we had met over the many years and uh, right and started uh, yeah just trying to figure it out still it took me about a year asking the question what am I going to do where is this going money is really getting low you know and uh, so then um, I went, I was invited to take care of a cat on a beautiful uh, piece of land in the south of France by some people who had been to Soginji and learned Japanese pottery. And they said I could stay in their place for three months and look after their cat. And I thought, okay, I'm going to meditate for three months and think about this and come out clear. And I went there for three months and had a really, <laughs> it was winter and I took a lot of walks, meditated a lot, listened to music some freddie mercury once in a while kind of get some get some power going you know because just me and the cat after three months you want to hear some music uh but then i i started to really ask like loud you know you, you're alone a lot you can talk to yourself and i really started to ask you know the universe what where is this going like where is this going like where is this going and is gave you know filled my energy with this question and all the doubt that came with it and the next morning was an email for me and a job offer to work on a in an old mill in the middle of Bavaria in the countryside and to go work with kids and the interesting thing was after I had made this long prayer that was what came was young people i really in 40 years old and i had never i had you know met young we had kids from the waldorf school at, at tahoma we had i'd gone to, with japanese kids to saipan for some things but to really be with kids was i had missed it i had missed it and so there was then this email the next day with this job offer to come and work on this old mill with kids and i thought okay and it kind of went on like that, that that was where I was meant to go to work with the young people and uh, yes. 16, years, 16 years later, yeah, still doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, wow. Um, and the, the shiatsu was a part of that? Yeah, that actually was an important development. I actually, the, one of the motivations that my, uh, the woman had who asked me the job, she didn't have any workers. But she also 
she was an amazing youth worker herself. And I, I saw her and she knew she felt seen, but she also had the rheumatism. And so, um, and the, the mill at that time where I worked, it's called Leistmühle. The, the mill had, was 300 year old building and it had really thin windows. And the, it had, it worked, the electricity was on the, worked on the stream. So if leaves got, like nothing worked if there were leaves in the, in the stream and the turbine. And, and and it was cold in the house you know wood fire in many places of the house and it wasn't good for her so she got some rheumatism things and and she's a very sensitive person and i started working you know with some qigong and some energy and so forth and putting my hands on and it seemed to help and uh, so she had me one day work with one of the kids just put my hands on the way I had. And uh, this nine-year-old girl, she, of course, Christina was there at the time and I, I did my little thing. And this nine-year-old girl sits up and Christina asks her how it was. And she says, uh, in German, Bavarian, actually, she says, Shoshé. And Shoshé is Bavarian for schon schön, which means uh, it was very beautiful but I thought it meant like shit because shoshé sounds like crap. <laughs> you know, it doesn't sound in my language. So I didn't think she really appreciated or felt anything. But then I was gradually allowed to, to do that with people. But then I had another experience actually right after a Mario seminar where one of our kids who I'd worked very intensely with um, was hit by a bicycle. He actually flew into the windshield and then the, the young lady hit the brakes and he flew about 20 feet and uh, I went to the emergency or the intensive unit if I had come back from the Mario I got the news on, on the Monday I went to the hospital and he was full of 11 different tubes and had some some weird thing in his leg and they said he's he's paralyzed and, uh, I said okay but I asked if I could come back just to be there for the mother and, and be there with him, but he was asleep. He was four days. He was out. He was in a coma for about four days. And, uh, I went, um, I went in the next day and, and for whatever reasons, you know, I was in a fairly, I think a, a very selfless place. I put my hand on him and I felt I could clearly understand that his energy had pulled back to the bone, but it wasn't gone. It was alive, but it was just pulled back. And so I, I ended up going to the uh, intensive unit every day. They let me bring music. I brought some avopeat, some, some classical music. And they kind of watched me every day, just put my hands on, on him. And, um, you know, and I don't want to try to put into words what was going on exactly, but uh, there was a, a lot of love in my heart when I was doing that and I had a deep connection to him and so it worked whatever worked you know that eventually there was some spastic movement they said oh that's nothing and then at some point you know he, he actually over a couple months and some rehabilitation but I stayed with the process and and yeah so then I convinced myself that I can do something in that direction because I, the Roshi didn't train me to be a you know to do this kind of work so and I asked Mario, but he didn't answer. He's not interested in giving anybody any, not telling him what to do, you know, what, anything like that. You have to figure it out for yourself with these masters. So I just said, okay. And then Christina said, uh, why don't you try Shiatsu? 
And then I went and I thought, yeah, okay. Because you need a form to tell people what you're doing. Right. My hands are, you're going to be fine. (laughs) And it's not true. Also, you're not always in that same place of perfect love and and healing and and the expectation, all of that. Right. I mean, I tried, of course, a little bit, but you know, that was meant to be, it was a, it was a situation that helped me to, to, to get the, and it helped him, but it was, you know, it was meant to kind of happen so that I could understand what might be good for me. And then I, I, I found actually was a, a student of the Roshis who was in, um, I went down to see the Roshi in Sicily and, and, uh, Akim, I think, uh, she did Shiatsu and I asked her, who's the best in Europe? She told me Sasaki. I looked up Sasaki and his, one of his top disciples is in Regensburg about 40 minutes from here. And he was doing, starting a training. And so it all kind of happened and he became my good friend. And, um, and then I started doing Shiatsu and uh, bring a little Zazen to the Shiatsu group. And, and so yes. that worked. Yes. Wonderful. Um, with, with the remaining time, let's, let's talk about, you know, what the take home is about all this and what's going on for you now what's next what's yeah what's the next chapter where are we going uh, you know um yeah uh, i'm right there where i always was i don't know <laughs> it's just always amazing you know um that when the brain tries to figure it out right i have a good job i've had a good job i have course i give some courses in a hospital which i always wanted to do um you know just regeneration for hospital workers and and uh, i do some things in schools you know for the montessori school i've done that for 14 years i i took uh, i did three uh, three trips to india right with teenagers yeah. to uh, learn about meditation and social work and yes. um you know, none of those things I started, okay, I'm going to go to Germany and do this, that, and the other, right? It sort of unfolded the way it is. And I want to, I'd rather not try to force it too much, but you also have a great partner, you know, over 10 years now. And that, I don't know how that happened either. (laughs) And that's deepened, you know, to a very wonderful place. Um, And we're still working on that, you know, actually, Germany, you know, psychotherapy is born here, right? I mean, when you want to bring the heart into your practice, in German, that's called therapy. <laughs> you know, therapy, therapy is a tough word for many people, right? Somebody want needed to be just art, right? But I think I've met so many incredibly interesting people who do therapy, right? That I really have lost my allergy to the word, <laughs> and. Uh, I, I, I visit a man, his name is Hunter Beaumont, who's a, a psychotherapist from Los Angeles who came here 40 years ago to beat the wave of materialism and raise his kids here. And he's a deeply spiritual guy who integrates spiritual practice with his therapy. And his crowning work is to bring tango, relationship and tango, yeah, tango for me, <laughs> tango into uh like how to recognize where you're at like in this intimacy, this close, where am I at? Where's this other person at? And 
what are they thinking? You know, what's going on here? <laughs> Am I centered? <laughs> and this is interesting for me at the moment. Yeah, yeah. I love it. And uh, and that's another thing that you know really was hard for me in in Zen. I, I I danced in public twice, and twice people gave me a hard time for that. You know, and I think that this is probably. <laughs> You know, the dance has to be there for me. <laughs> and so I think if you feel your life is dancing, I think it's, it's a great place to see you got where you're kind of supposed to go. If you have dance in your life and you're feeling the dance, you're feeling it. It wasn't easy for me to feel the dance in tango. You know, I'm, not, I'm not going after that, but you know, there's something beautiful happening in the dance there too. I mean, it's not the only dance I've done Buto, you know, I've done some things here, but sometimes it's just that, you know, you're dancing the way you're living, the way you're working, the way you're walking through the, you know, back to almost the way you saw the Roshi here, right? Just yeah. your life is, you remember the Roshi used to walk on the roofs, you know, when yeah. I used to, yeah. you know, walk on the highest roof of the Hondo, just walk like right across the tiles on the top, like it was like it was Peter Pan, and you know, sometimes I never saw that. <laughs> yeah, he hurt his back at some point. Yeah. And he was, you know, quite a, quite a. Sometimes our lives are also like that. It doesn't have to be so physically amazing, right? If I meet Hunter or these these soft, older, very mature people, you're you're just dancing with them and and dancing with other people and seeing how they communicate to you, taking feedback, you know, taking feedback that maybe you're not feeling just, you feel nervous or centered or, or that you improved, but then where does that go? And how do you integrate that information? And yeah. how do you, how do you strive without becoming attached? And I think this Zen koan that has been, that I knew I left the monastery with and would always carry is this true man of no rank, right? Like, like really not getting stuck in a position, not really not whether you're the lowest monk or the head monk or whether you're, uh, you know, a boss or an employee or the therapist or the client, just not being so stuck there and and uh, getting resentment, right? Blocking the situation and, and then not, you know, can be more loving this life and and I would and this is the only the limitation of Zen for me right that I couldn't find that vocabulary maybe because it's a, a Western person's need I'm not sure but in, in that sense I'm 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 satisfied right I'm content to how things worked out and where it's going you know I hope I see you there <laughs> oh well well, I think this is really wonderful, and um, I'm so excited to see, you know, where, you know, it doesn't matter. I'm so excited that you exist in, in the world, and that um, I'm hoping that people can look at this video, and they can see, you know, maybe they had some ideas about what Zen is, and um, maybe some rigid ideas, and, and seeing that kind of unique flavor of I think how you've approached it, how it how it changed you, the depth of it, and then seeing it flourish, and um, just that unique your unique spark to it, I think is can be really helpful to people. Uh, so that was kind of my hope to have you on here to to reveal that 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 aspect of Zen that 
you know, again, I, I talk about this, but you, when I met you, I, I saw, oh, there's a type of liberation, a type of freedom and excitement. And, um, and, and that's what Zen is kind of about. And um, there are a lot of details there. there. There's a lot of form, there's all that. But seeing that, that, that spark that you have has been so inspiring to me. So I'm, I'm hoping that people will see that and, and um, that'll come through a little bit. I, I think it has. Um, and I, I love you, you said. Oh, 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 yeah, a little appreciation with me goes a long way. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh, well, you know, it's, it's, it was very strange to do this. I really, I really kind of happy now that you asked because I, I, I like telling you stories, I guess. So. Yeah, well, well, Thank yes. Thank you. And um, I'm sad because Yusan was going to come visit here. Uh, and next month, and he's not not able to. Um, so we're gonna postpone that um, for a little while. But um, I, I hope to see you soon, sir. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Corey. Uh, yeah. uh, love to you and your family. Hey, thank you. And, and, and love to Florentina too, please. Okay. 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 All right, bye-bye, um, and thank you. Um, yeah, we'll see you soon. Okay, see you soon, great, thank you.